Well, please open your Bibles to Mark 1. We will be looking at verses 1 through 13. Mark 1, verses 1 through 13. And we'll be spending the next several weeks in the book of Mark, journeying through it together. Now, I know that some of you have already been going through the book of Mark in small group. And Amy and I were able to attend that meeting the other night and uh, you're almost finished. You're, you're almost all the way through, so I'm admittedly a little self-conscious this morning. And as I told some of you there, you, I'm counting on you to keep me accountable and honest to the text, but please do save your comments for after the sermon. Um, but there at small group, we asked a, a good and what I think is the right question when we're reading the book of Mark, we asked, is there any love, any act of devotion, any act of adoration that we can give to Jesus that is too extravagant? And, and what Mark is going to do for us is paint a picture of Jesus in his richness and in his beauty, in his identity as the Son of God, and give us a, a resounding no. He is worth everything. So, That's the hope of this journey through Mark, is that we will be granted by God a fresh perspective on the beauty of his son Jesus, that we will treasure him more and follow him more closely. Here at the outset of this journey, I want to give a brief overview of the book of Mark and and highlight some of its more prominent themes. We will uncover different themes along the way, but these themes here are going to be somewhat of touchstones that we always are constantly returning to as we go through this book. But first, a comment about the structure and and the nature of Mark itself. Mark is a book of action. It is the shortest of the synoptic gospels, and oftentimes this means it leaves out a lot of the details that Matthew and Luke have included. What this means, though, is that when we do find details in Mark that are unique to Mark, Our ears should perk up and we should look and dig deeper because Mark is trying to tell us something. There is treasure in these details he's decided to include. One of the themes that arises in the book of Mark is the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and his authority. We see Jesus exercise his authority over demons, over sickness, over death over nature and creation itself. In the teaching of the word, Jesus exercises his authority to forgive sins. And this theme of authority dominates the first half of the book, but about halfway through, we see another theme arise. And it's Jesus' identity as the Son of God, defined by serving and suffering. The turning point is in Mark 8.31. We heard it this morning. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In spite of his authority as the Son of God, Jesus will ultimately save his people not through overt force, but through suffering and serving. One final theme we are going to highlight this morning is that of discipleship. In Mark, Jesus is the prime example of what it looks like to follow God. 
He's often contrasted not even not just with his opponents, but even his followers who are struggling with their own unbelief and, and misguided notions of Jesus' identity. So we can't read Mark without asking the question of ourselves, will I follow Jesus? Will I follow his example? And so taken together, the message of the book of Mark as a whole could be something like this. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and he surprisingly serves and suffers in order to save his people. Follow him. So as we turn our eyes to verses 1 through 13, what we're going to see here is really an, an introduction into an introduction not only to Jesus, but to the entire book of Mark. And and packed within our passage, I think if we look closely enough, we can find each one of these themes we've just touched on. And so the hope and prayer of this sermon is the same for our journey through Mark. It's that we would see the stunning beauty of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we would follow him. So look with me now at our passage, Mark 1, verses one through 13, we will consider it in three parts. In verses 1 through 3, we have the proclamation and the prophecy of the Son of God. Part 2 is verses 4 through 8, the prophet of the Son of God appears. And part 3 would be verses 9 through 13, the person of the Son of God appears. So part 1, verses 1 through 3, the proclamation and the prophecy of the Son of God Part 2, verses 4 through 8, the prophet of the Son of God appears. And part 3, verses 9 through 13, the person of the Son of God appears. And the main idea of this introduction to Jesus and the Gospel of Mark is this. The Son of God appears and he humbly obeys the Father by the Spirit. Follow him. So look with me now at verses 1 through 3, the proclamation and the prophecy Of the Son of God. There we read The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So, as noted, our our passage is an introduction to the book of Mark, but here in verses 1 through 3, we have an introduction within the introduction. Uh, And notice uh, a difference here. We're already getting a taste of Mark's style. There's no backstory, no extended genealogy, not the details you would find in, in Matthew and Luke. Instead, Mark cuts right to the chase. Jesus is the Christ. That is, he is the Messiah, the Son of God. You would be right to notice also this key word, beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's only three other books in in all of the Bible that open with the word beginning. Naturally, our mind goes back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Genesis 1-1. Perhaps we think of John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And we have a similar opening in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. 
The message is clear. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And just as God created everything out of nothing, he is about to create something new in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's quite the dramatic intro, isn't it? Mark is already in his in his brevity, pushing us to the edge of our seats. What will the Son of God do, we may ask? And and when will he appear? Well, this word beginning not only describes what Jesus will do in the whole of his gospel, but it it also literally describes the beginning of it uh, here in our narrative, how it started. And and Mark anchors the start of Jesus' gospel ministry in Old Testament prophecy. As we read in verses 2 through 3, Mark directs our attention to Isaiah. We read, as the prophet, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So in verse 1, we had the proclamation, the headline of sorts, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here we have that proclamation anchored in Old Testament prophecy. Now, the, the astute reader, or the, the one of you who might look at the little letters in your Bible and look down at the footnote, will see that Verse 2 actually isn't from Isaiah at all. It's from Malachi 3.1. So the question might naturally arise, well, what is Mark doing here? Does he just not know his Old Testament? Is he just quoting scriptures willy-nilly? Is, did he not proofread this? I think we can rest assured that's not the case. I think what Mark is doing is something pretty profound here. He is showing us how we should read our Old Testament. The prophecies of the Old Testament are all one in the same. They point to the Messiah, Jesus. And and the book of Isaiah gives some of the most detailed, the richest, the most robust descriptions of the coming Messiah. So for Mark, the voice that carries the day is Isaiah. And he casts these prophecies in his voice and, and tells us, look to Isaiah. And so this is going to be an important standard going forward. As we go through the book of Mark, we are going to over and over again be returning to Isaiah to see and interpret and understand what Mark is doing. Isaiah will be the lens through which we read Mark. You'll probably get tired of how often we go back to Mark, and you might even get a little tired of it, or how often we go back to Isaiah, you might even get a little tired of it this morning. But let's take our cues from Mark and look at these Old Testament prophecies in, in context. Malachi 3.1, this is related to verse 2 of the prophecy. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly Come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the messenger that is being sent is preparing the way for the Lord, and he will appear suddenly. Or verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This points us to Isaiah 40. There we read, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Further down in Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 10, we read this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord your God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. So the Lord is coming. The prophet will prepare the way for the Lord to come to pardon iniquity and to rule in might. So the the message is clear. God promises that he will send a prophet to prepare the way for his Messiah. So if Mark could push us any further to the edge of our seat, he has done it. All of redemptive history has built to this point, as we see in Old Testament prophecy. But first comes the prophet. So now we look at part two, verses eight through nine. The prophet of the Son of God appears. In verse four, we read, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, John literally bursts onto the scene here, doesn't he? It says, John appeared. Suddenly, he is just in the wilderness proclaiming a cry of repentance. Now, this initially might seem a little odd. The Messiah is coming. Shouldn't we be expecting a battle cry to join him in overthrowing oppression? But this actually fits with Isaiah 40, doesn't it? What we just read. For God is coming to pardon iniquity. So John's ministry of baptism, of the repentance, of the forgiveness of sin, foreshadows the Messiah's mission, delivering not from earthly oppression, but from spiritual oppression. Further down, we see some interesting details about uh, John himself. He already looks like the promised prophet, But now he looks even more like him because we read in verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Some interesting details. But this should actually remind us of the prophet Isaiah in 2 Kings, who wore a garment of hair, a leather belt, subsisted off the land. And and our our. Old Testament prophecy from Malachi, just a few verses before that we read here, proclaims John, or proclaims this coming messenger to indeed be Elijah. Malachi 4 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, as if we needed any more convincing, we see now that John is indeed this promised prophet. He is the Elijah that was proclaimed to come before the Lord. And if we look further in the Gospels, we'll see that Jesus himself later confirms this. 
And what is the content of his message? We've already seen that it's uh, a, a repentance, uh, a call to repentance through baptism. But in verses 7 through 8, we see that he also preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he says a mightier one is coming. Now this might sound more like what we're expecting with the Messiah. Isaiah 40 says God is coming in might to rule. And and John gives an illustration to to describe the gap that there is between himself and this coming one. And and it's an image that shows the worth and the greatness of the one who's coming, but also the lowly position of John as a sinner in his ministry. You see, in this day, as as you might be familiar with, one of the lowliest jobs of a slave in a master's household was dealing with his feet. So unstrapping sandals is one of the lowest positions you could have, and John places himself below this. This isn't just hyperbole. We've already seen that this coming one, the Messiah, comes in the name of the Lord. He is identified with Yahweh God himself. So we might, might as well just count ourselves with John here. Who could approach this Messiah? Who could even draw near? And John's mission pales in comparison as well. John says he baptizes with water, but the one who is coming after him will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He will be a man of the Spirit. So the scene has been set. Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled. And all of redemption history is at a tipping point. All that remains now is for the Messiah himself to appear in order to deliver his people. Who will this one be? What will he do? We look now at our third part, verses 9 through 13. The person of the Son of God appears. We read in verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So just as John suddenly appeared in the narrative, now Jesus suddenly appears in the narrative. The Messiah, the one all of redemptive history has been, has been waiting and building towards. And what kind of introduction does he, does he get? Well, it's not some regal, glorious introduction. There's no pomp and circumstance. In fact, Mark includes a detail here that... that that shows the humility of Jesus' arrival. Mark, Mark says that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, both Matthew and Luke do include this detail that Jesus was from Nazareth, that he grew up there and spent time there, his hometown. But only Mark includes this detail with the introduction of Jesus and in the narrative of his baptism. Scholars tell us that Nazareth, even in its day, was was a virtually forgettable city. It didn't even appear on the maps of the day. And here we have the Messiah coming from Nazareth. Such a picture of humility. And, And what happens? Well, he is baptized by John. 
we may ask ourselves, why, why this? We know from, from Matthew that John initially resisted Jesus coming to be baptized from him. And what does Jesus respond? He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We know Jesus isn't being baptized for repentance. He is sinless. So, so what is going on here? Well, John's call is from God. God is coming to redeem his people. And here we have the Redeemer identifying with God's mission and submitting to God's will. Just think of the act itself. It will characterize, this, this act characterizes what Jesus' ministry will be. Jesus will submit himself completely to God's will in humble obedience. Here we have John. The self-proclaimed unworthy one can't even unstrap this man's sandals because of how great the Messiah is and how lowly John is. John, the unworthy one, receives the Messiah, embraces the Son of God in his arms, and in a staggering moment of vulnerability, Jesus entrusts himself into John's embrace the arms of a sinful man wrapped around him, supporting his weight, plunging him beneath the water and raising him out. What a picture of humility. What an image. This will not be the last time that Jesus gives himself over willingly into the hands of sinful men to obey God and save his people. And what is the response of such an act of humility and obedience to God? We see in verse 10, it's a divine one. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. It takes Matthew and Luke three chapters to get to this point in the narrative. But here, we've reached it in 10 verses. And what does Mark do? Well, he speeds it up even more by adding the word immediately. <laughs> immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Why is Mark quickening the pace? Well, this is going to highlight the urgency of Jesus' mission. There is a goal. There is a destination. And it starts now. We also notice that as the heavens rip, uh, tear open, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Here we can return to Isaiah to, to understand what is going on here. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In Isaiah 42, 1, we also read, Behold my servant, whom I'm, I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit is here. 
the Messiah is here, the man of the Spirit himself. And just as Isaiah prophesied, God the Father delights in him and calls him his son. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and now we see that he is the Son of God, just as we heard this morning in Psalm 2. So what will be his next move? How will he exercise his power and authority to pardon and rule in might? Will he overthrow human oppression, the Roman government? Will he save his people? Well, the answer is yes, he will save his people, but in an unexpected way. Following in the pattern of his baptism, Jesus' next move further characterizes the nature of his unexpected mission. In verses 12 through 13, we read, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So what's the Son of God's first move? Perfect, humble obedience to the Spirit. And and we see the language of the Spirit driving him. This just highlights how Jesus is so constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit's will is bound, Jesus' will is bound up with the Spirit's will. The Father's will is God's will, is Jesus' will. And where does he go? He goes to a desolate place. Now just pause for a moment and, and, and think of We can't help but admire Jesus here. God's will is his will, perfectly obedient to the Spirit. And and we can't help but fill a microscope over ourselves and say, I haven't been perfectly obedient to the Spirit. Is that my disposition? Thankfully, it was Jesus's. And as we noted it, the Spirit takes him to a desolate place, the wilderness. Why here? Well, I think there's, there's two reasons. First, this foreshadows Jesus' ministry. It will be one of loneliness. He will walk a lonely road, serving and suffering. Though though throughout Mark, his disciples and crowds constantly surround him, what we will see is that Jesus always ends up in a desolate place. And even in the midst of these crowds, he is often standing alone with regard to his identity and his mission due to the unbelief of not only his opponents, but his followers. The, The strange language of him being there with the wild animals contrasted with the the angels ministering to him. It just highlights the nature of 
the, the nature of Jesus' solo mission. He is alone. And through complete dependence upon God, he will alone accomplish the task. And God will sustain him. Ultimately, all will abandon him, even as he submits to God's will to save them. The second reason he goes into the wilderness is to do what Israel never could. To do what you and I never could. In verse 13, we see, And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So Jesus enters the wilderness for a purpose. There in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted, or better translated, tested by Satan. So the language of 40 days, wilderness, and testing should remind us of God's testing of Israel in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8, 2, we see, And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. Where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. Where you and I have failed, Jesus succeeded. And once again, in, in, in a stunning picture, in a stunning twist, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, does not march out to face down human oppression of governments and authority in earth. Rather, he marches out to engage the true enemy, Satan, and sin. This will be his mission. And he will walk back out of the wilderness, the Son of God, on a mission. And his obedience to the Father will ultimately mean rejection self-denial, and suffering to save his people. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, Isaiah makes clear that self-sacrifice is the method by which the Messiah will save his people. And Jesus is the promised suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Just meditate on the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as I read from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Recall Jesus' baptism. There the sky tears open and God declares Jesus his beloved son. This points to the ultimate destination of Jesus the Messiah. His ministry makes a beeline to the cross. In Mark 15.37 we read very similar language. Identical language in fact. And Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross, and Jesus uttered, a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. As one commentator put it, through Jesus' death on the cross, access to the Father is granted. We see it in the beginning of Jesus' ministry at his baptism, and we see it in his death on the cross. So how will the Messiah, the Son of God, save his people? Might through weakness, authority through humble obedience, Salvation through self-denial, serving, and suffering. This is your Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, who walked the path that you never could so that you can now follow him because he gives you the same Holy Spirit. He served, suffered, and died in order to bring you back to God. So we cannot read Mark's account of Jesus without recognizing our need for his gospel ministry or admiring his obedience to God. So we must ask ourselves the question, will I follow him? Do I follow him? Will I follow him as my savior and as my model of faith and dependence upon God? We heard this morning Philippians 2 in in talking about the mind of Christ who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So in light of the reality that Jesus has done these things, that he gives us his very own Holy Spirit, we must ask ourselves, am I of the same mind of Christ? Do I walk in obedience? Do I walk in humility? Do I operate out of selfish ambition and conceit? Do I look to my own interests? Or do I look to the interests of others? Indeed, the Son of God's appearance in Mark forces the question upon us. Do I, will I, follow Jesus? I plead with you. 
follow him. He is the Messiah, the suffering servant, the son of God, who has baptized you, Christian, in the Holy Spirit. And he is your savior. And he invites you to follow him and he invites all to follow him.